Um, so let's press in together. We've been uh, praying for the last couple of weeks into a particular verse as we begin to study God's Word each Sunday morning, and it's Ephesians 1.17. I keep asking, Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Anybody want that? Come on now, wait a minute. That is a tepid response if I've ever seen one. I'm going to get down on you here. Anybody want to know God better? It's okay to be excited about that. I give you permission. I hope you genuinely want to know God better. And my job, my task is, as I teach the Word of God, to operate in the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I can help you know God better, right? And that same spirit that allows me to be able to teach the Word is the one that allows you to be able to receive and understand and apply the Word. It's the same spirit that inspired the writing of the Word to begin with, right? So it's about the ministry of the Word and the Spirit together in our lives. When the Word and the Spirit come together, the truth of the Word and the power of the Spirit, our lives get shaped in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. That's why we commit time like this to teaching and studying the Word of God on a weekly basis. So, you know, if you're thinking, well, I wish you wouldn't talk so long. It's kind of boring. I don't really like the sermon. Let me just remind you, we do this because we believe that the truth of God's Word, combined with the power of God's Spirit, changes our lives for the better. For the better. And we all need that. We all long to know God better and to walk with Him more closely. So let me encourage you to listen well and learn well this morning from what the Lord has to speak. We've been talking about a story from John chapter 4. It's the story of a Samaritan woman who encountered Jesus at a place called Jacob's Well. And it's in a little town called Sychar in the region of Samaria, uh, north of Jerusalem, kind of midway between Jerusalem and Galilee, where Jesus was headed. He was walking from Jerusalem to Galilee, and he took this path through Samaria and encountered this woman at Jacob's Well in the village of Sychar. And so two weeks ago, when we began to look at this story, we really talked about the personal interaction between Jesus and the woman. We looked at each one of them. What did they have to say to each other? What did they learn? What, what happened as they encountered one another at Jacob's well? And we learned together, if I can just summarize in a statement and uh, by way of review here, we learned that to live well is to draw life from the true living well, Jesus. That's what this woman learned through her encounter with Jesus at Jacob's well, right? Jesus was basically saying to her in that encounter, if you want to live well, you got to drink from my life. I have a life, a, a, a fullness of life, an eternal life, an abundant life to offer you, but it only comes when you recognize who I am and what I've done for you. That's what that woman learned through her encounter with Jesus. To live well is to draw life from the true living well, Jesus. But then uh, last week, we took that a step further, and we talked about the fact that Jesus, on this occasion, was also interacting with his disciples. 
And he was teaching them something very important, very significant, through this whole encounter with the woman at the well. They were off buying food in the village. When they returned, they found Jesus talking to the woman. They were confused by it, disoriented. They didn't know what to make of it. It was very unusual for a Jewish man to be talking to a Samaritan woman. In most cases, Jesus would have been considered unclean and unholy and unrighteous because he was talking with that woman, right? And uh, Jesus took that as a teachable moment and went on to explain then to the disciples what he was doing and why he was doing it, and then he invited them to do it with him, right? So this was a teachable moment. It was about discipleship. It was about helping his followers understand that Jesus was inviting them to join him in the Father's work. And so you'll remember the statement. Jesus said, they thought, well, you know, why didn't he eat lunch? Or where did he get the, what kind of, he said, my food is to do the will and to finish the work of my Father in heaven. And Jesus, in that statement, was inviting the disciples to discover the same reality. That he was committed to the Father's work and wanted to enjoin them in that work with him. So to live well, then, is to join the Father's work by reaping a harvest of changed lives. Jesus wanted to enlist his disciples to do the kinds of things that he was doing so that more people's lives could be touched and changed as the life of that woman was. That was what we talked about last Sunday. And then at the end of our time together, uh, I wanted to connect this story for you with our vision and mission as a local church. And so just quickly, by way of review, I laid out for you uh, our vision statement and our mission statement because I think uh, the reality of what God has called us to do together and why we exist as a local church is directly connected to this story. This story is a great illustration of what God wants to do in and among all of his people and in this body particularly. So I shared with you that our vision for ministry at CCV amounts to this, making Jesus famous in Greater Lansing and beyond as a vibrant and growing community of faith that has a relational life-changing impact in people's lives by the power of God's Spirit at work in our midst. There it is in one sentence. That's what we're aiming for. That's our preferred future. That's where we're trying to go together. And then our mission which is directly related to our vision, this is really our purpose, is deepening relationships by connecting people upward, inward, and outward. Deepening relationships is right at the heart, right at the very core of what we're called to do and be as a local church, right? Because you'll remember that the greatest commandment that Jesus taught on was that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And of course, we understand from the rest of the New Testament that our neighbor is uh, anyone that God puts in our path, right? Certainly that includes our brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of the body of Christ and that we're called into community with, but it also includes people in the world. So thus the, the phrase, deepening relationships by connecting people upward with the Lord, inward with the church, and outward with with the world. We want to be about deepening relationships in all three of those realms, upward with the Lord, inward with the church, and outward with the world. 
That's our mission as a church. So now to transition to one other element of this story that I want you to see with me both this morning and next Sunday, let me ask you a question. How do we hope to accomplish our vision and mission as a local church? What do we need to do to move in the direction of accomplishing our vision and mission as a local church? Certainly we're dependent on God's Spirit to be at work in our midst. But what I want to suggest to you is that there are practices that we can commit ourselves to that release the work of God's Spirit among us. Some people refer to them as spiritual disciplines. Others refer to them as, as uh, core values. And many would call them just you know practices. Whatever terminology you want to use, what I want to share with you over the next several weeks uh, is, is about our first priority and practice, which is worship. We are called to practice the priority of worship. And if you want to just glance briefly at the back of your bulletin this morning, you'll see that worship is the first among 12 different practices that we are committed to as a local church. There are four that serve to deepen our relationship with the Lord. Uh, that's the, up, the upward-directed practices, worship, discipleship, stewardship, and prayer. There are four inward practices that serve to deepen our relationships with one another. Those include family, uh, ministry, small groups, um, uh, spiritual gifts, and uh, I don't have the bulletin in front of me, the third one. <laughs> yes, um, congregational care. Thank you so much. Uh, and then outward, uh, there are four practices that are focused outward that help us develop and cultivate deeper relationships with people in the world around us. Those are hospitality, compassion, evangelism, and missions. So in short, then, there are 12 different practices that we believe are all biblical and that God has called us to do, to commit ourselves to doing, so that the Spirit of God can move among us and within us to accomplish God's will and to help us accomplish the vision and the mission that we're committed to. So we're going to talk about worship this morning and next Sunday. And uh, it's another element of this story about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, but it's an element that we have really yet to touch on uh, in these last two weeks. We've been talking about other dynamics, the dynamics of the relationships at work in that story. But this morning I want you to focus specifically on a middle section from the story, verses 19 to 26, and on what Jesus has to teach the woman and us, by extension, about the practice of worship. So we'll pick up the reading in verse 19. Jesus has just told the woman that she has five husbands, she's had five husbands, and she's now living unmarried with a sixth man, and she's responding with the recognition that he must be a prophet. And here's what she says. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. What an ironic statement that is. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who's going to explain to you what true or genuine worship is all about. Now, there are several things about being a genuine worshiper of God that I want to highlight for you from this story. And we're not going to finish this morning. We're going to come back to this again next Sunday, just to give you a quick preview. And we're going to talk specifically next Sunday about Jesus' statement that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? How does that work? But let me share some things with you that will lead us up to that uh, discussion next Sunday. And the first one has to do with the heart of God. What Jesus says in these verses reveals something to us that's fundamentally uh, critical about the heart of God. Do you see it? The God of the universe is actively seeking genuine worshipers. Think about that. The God of the universe is actively seeking genuine worshipers. That's the first and most fundamental takeaway that we can glean from Jesus' words about worship in these verses. Think about what it means to seek something, to seek it. What are you seeking in your own life right now? To seek something is to search for it diligently. It's to watch for it eagerly to anticipate its discovery. I was thinking long and hard about a good example or illustration of this in my own experience, and there are several that came to mind, but the one I'm going to talk to you about for just a moment is the idea of hunting for a trophy buck. Deej will appreciate this, right? Some of you, maybe a few others, are into hunting as a hobby. I haven't actually gotten out to do much of it the last few years, but Whether you're a hunter or not, hopefully you can understand the idea here, right? Because if you're a hunter, you're waiting, you're watching, you're seeking the right animal to to glean, to harvest, right? And uh, what's interesting about this, if you're not a hunter, this might be educational for you, is that there are some who are much more fussy about what they shoot than others, right? In fact, there's a whole organization that's dedicated to helping people learn how to wait on the small ones so that they can grow to become big ones. It's called quality deer management. Quality deer management. There's a whole organization, and their job is to educate hunters so that hunters will not shoot the little deer. They'll let the little deer grow up to become big deer, and then they'll shoot the big deer. Right? That's what quality deer management is all about. 
In fact, I was driving through the countryside last night, yesterday afternoon, and saw a sign at the you know, Barry County Fairgrounds. Quality Deer Management Banquet. They're trying to gather all the hunters from Barry County to come together so that they can educate them about how to wait, how to seek the trophies, not the little ones, right? So I share that illustration with you because I believe, in one sense, it's fair to say that God is actually on the hunt for genuine worshipers. Think of it that way. God is on the hunt for genuine worshipers. Not that he intends to shoot them, of course, but because he intends to use them for his purposes. That's why he's looking, watching, searching for genuine worshipers. Because when God finds a genuine worshiper, he knows this is a man or woman that I can use for my purposes. Did you know that David was only a young boy of about 15 years old when the prophet Samuel said of him, and this was a declaration to the king of Israel, to King Saul, the prophet Samuel said in 1 Samuel 13, 14, the Lord has rejected you, Saul, and instead the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Think about that statement. Think about what it reveals about David and why God chose David. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. You see, David was a true worshiper. David grew up in the fields of Bethlehem, tending his flocks as a shepherd boy and just singing his heart out to the Lord. I don't know how many of his psalms were were perhaps written in those early years before he was anointed king, before he became famous. But you, you certainly could imagine that many of them were, were birthed in those early years when David was just a boy, just a boy, singing his heart out to the Lord with no one to watch but the one who mattered most. Right? David was a man after God's own heart. And God noticed, because God's looking for people like that. Isn't that a telling statement about this young teenager, right? doesn't matter how old he is. doesn't matter what job he has or how respected or disrespected he is by other people, including his own family. What mattered was his heart, what was in his heart, his heart for the Lord. God sought him out and selected him to become ruler of his people, the great King David, all because this little shepherd boy was a man, a young man, after God's own heart. Which, you know, being translated means he, he was a man of worship. He was a man of worship. He loved nothing more than to sing and make music to the Lord in the fields of Bethlehem while he was watching his sheep. And that story, I think, my friends, is a, is a precursor to the words of Jesus in John 4.23. Here's the key verse in Jesus' dialogue with the woman at the well. John 4.23. Yet a time is coming, he says, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. 
They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We're going to look at some different dimensions of that verse. But the first one is, is that statement right at the end. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The Father is seeking, actively seeking, genuine worshipers. Are you one? Think about how amazing that statement is. Our God, our Father in the heavens, is looking for a particular kind of worshiper. He's looking, he's watching over the face of the earth for those people who will worship him in the right way. For those who will be men and women after his heart. And, and notice that this picture of God is not active. It, it, it's active, not passive. I'm sorry. It's not a picture of a disinterested God or a preoccupied God. It doesn't represent to us a God who's too busy uh, you know, with other things, all the affairs of the world, uh, to actually notice what kind of worshipers we are. To the contrary, Jesus' words indicate to us that the Father is intent on discovering those who worship him as he deserves and desires. So this is important to God, right? He wouldn't be looking for this kind of person if it wasn't important to him. In other words, when it comes to worship, God is a noticer. He's a noticer. He notices those who are passionate, those who are genuine about their worship. And he delights in that kind of worship. He notices what lies hidden in our hearts. And if our hearts are determined to seek his heart and to bless his heart and to touch his heart, he sees that and responds. Have you ever been in the presence of a worshiper like that? Is, does somebody come to mind as an example of that kind of person who just cares nothing about what anybody else around them is doing or thinking because they just, when they get in the presence of Jesus, they're just absorbed. Nothing else matters. I know a few people like that, and every time I, I get to worship with them, I'm just um, provoked in a good and godly way to go even deeper, to develop a, a, a greater intimacy with the Father because I see it and it's, it's attractive, it's beautiful. In fact, you know, this whole thing, this whole business about God seeking a particular kind of worshiper is really why the first two of the Ten Commandments are about worship, right? Now, the Ten Commandments are intended to help us recognize our sin and confess it. They're intended to help us see our need for God's grace. So don't take this as a word of condemnation. Take it as a word of invitation. What is God looking for? Well, here's, here's what he said in Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. There you have it. No other gods before me. And the second commandment goes together with the first. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Now, there's a lot there that we could unpack and we don't have time, but does it strike you as odd or at least interesting that God would be jealous for your worship? Have you ever thought about that? In all of his holiness, how could that be? How could God be jealous? It just doesn't seem to add up for most of us because being jealous is a bad thing, not a good thing. But there is a sanctified jealousy, a jealousy that is holy through and through. There's a great quote I came across from the Christian Research Institute on this subject. Here's what they wrote in response to this question. There is such a thing as sanctified jealousy. As such, jealousy is the proper response of a husband or wife whose trust has been violated through infidelity. Indeed, when an exclusive covenant relationship is dishonored, sanctified jealousy is the passionate zeal that fights to restore that holy union. The jealousy of God for his holy name and for the exclusive worship of his people, as such, is sanctified. In other words, there's nothing wrong about it. It is good and right and holy for God to be jealous if we worship anything or anyone other than him. You see, what this is really about, and I think that that quote kind of reveals this reality, is it's about love. Worship is about love. It's about affection. It's about devotion. Worship comes from a heart of love for the Father and for the Son and for the Spirit. So God is rightfully jealous for our love and affection whenever we as his people don't really love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what he's wanting from us. That's what he's drawing out of us. That's the kind of relationship that he's inviting us into. And when other loves get in the way of our love for him, there's a sanctified jealousy that God has for us. So this is, what I'm talking about, of course, is about more than our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. This is about more than being sure that you're going to heaven when you die. This is about becoming the kind of worshiper, the kind of lover of God that truly touches his heart. I'll give you one last reference here before we move on to another point, because I, I love this description there's a word spoken by the prophet Hanani to King Asa, who was the king of Judah. And this really was another rebuke. As the word of Samuel to Saul about David was a rebuke, this word from Hanani to Asa was a rebuke as well. Because Asa was looking for help from other sources, from other nations, from other kings, rather than turning to God. And Hanani said this in 2 Chronicles 16:9, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Think about that. That's a promise that applies to us. That's a word that applies to us. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. He's looking, he's watching, he's seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So the first takeaway then from Jesus' words is about the heart of a seeking father. God is watching. 
looking here and there across the face of the earth for genuine worshipers, for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And it's not too late. It's not too late for any of us to become the kind of worshiper that the Father is seeking. Maybe you haven't been that kind of worshiper. That's okay. There's grace for that. You can still become that kind of worshiper with whatever days you have left to live. But that insight, I think, begs another question. If our aim is to become the kind of worshiper that God is seeking, then what constitutes genuine, unadulterated, God-honoring worship? What is it? How does it work? What does it look like? So at this point, let me suggest a definition that may be helpful for us. To worship is to purposefully express the worth of someone or something. Now, of course, that's a generic definition. It suggests that you could worship the wrong thing or the wrong person. And part of what makes genuine worship genuine is worshiping the right God, right? Not worshiping an idol or some other person or some experience or some possession. But you can worship other things. Those are called idols. Anything you worship or anyone you worship is worshipped by an expression of the worth of that thing or person or being. So in John 4.20, the woman raises this question with Jesus. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What, which one is it? You know, like, I want to get this right. And, and I think it's an interesting question for us to ponder. Why does she ask the question, right? Is it that she's trying to change the subject? Jesus has just kind of put his finger on the source of pain and brokenness in, in her life. He's just called her out, basically, for, for living with the sixth man after being married five times. And he, he does it in love. He does it, you know, like in the right spirit. He's not trying to throw her onto a guilt trip. He's trying to help her recognize her need for a savior. And she does. So she's drawn to worship. Why? Well, the question comes on the heels of Jesus revealing this uh, very personal reality about her life. And I think she's looking for forgiveness. I think she's looking for mercy. I think she's looking for how to make things right. Because at that time, that's what worship was about. You went to a particular place, either the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, or in the case of the Samaritans, to another temple that they had erected on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And what did you do there? You made sacrifices to atone for your sins so that you could receive forgiveness. That's what worship was at that time. And it had to be done in a very specific place. So the Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped at Mount Zion, at the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying something absolutely like mind-blowing here. He's saying to her, you know, woman, worship's not about where you go. It's about what you do. It doesn't matter whether you go to Jerusalem or whether you go to Mount Gerizim. It doesn't matter anymore. That's become irrelevant. 
What he's saying is, what really matters is how you worship, not where you worship. In fact, he's saying that a new time has come, a new, a, a new dawn is, has come where you can worship anywhere. Anywhere on the face of the earth you can worship. And it can be genuine if you worship in the right way. So his answer indicates that her understanding of worship is old school. It's impoverished. Jesus is saying it's not about the place where you go to worship. It's about doing worship in the right way, wherever you do it. So John 4.23, again, this key verse, a time is coming, he says, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So Jesus' response, and particularly the notion that there are indeed true worshipers whom the Father is seeking, suggests to us that we need to know what true worship really is and how to do it. For if there is such a thing as true or genuine worship, then it follows that there must also be untrue or disingenuous worship. Those who may seem to be worshiping, but are really somehow missing the point. There's a great quote I came across in my studies from one of my favorite theologians and authors named N.T. Wright. He's written a book called For All God's Worth. And uh, in the very introduction, page one, just hits it out of the park with a brief description of the essence of what worship is and what makes it genuine. He says, Christianity is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. We may not be content there, but we don't know how to escape. This little book is an attempt to say that the way through is by sheer, unadulterated worship of the living and true God. And by following this God wherever he leads, whether or not it is the way our traditions would suggest. Worship is not an optional extra for the Christian, some self-indulgent religious activity. It is the basic Christian stance, and indeed, the truly human stance. Worship derives from worth-ship. It means giving God all he's worth. Giving God all he's worth. It means giving God all he's worth. What is he worth to you? And what are you prepared to give him as an expression of his value in your life? True worship is fundamentally about God, not about us. It's about his worth or value. And sometimes, unfortunately, we make it about our likes or dislikes. Oh, well, you know, have you ever heard this said or said this to someone else? Well, I don't really like the worship today. I mean, I heard Francis Chan talk about this at the One Thing conference that we attended 
between Christmas and New Year's, and, and he did it far better than I ever could. And if you don't like the idea, you can blame him. But basically what he said is, that is like the stupidest remark anybody could ever make. Well, I didn't really like the worship today. Because it's completely self-centered. Worship's not about what you like. It's, it's really about whether you love God. So the style, the music, I mean, if somebody sings a little bit off pitch, is that going to distract you from worshiping the living God? If somebody plays a song that isn't your favorite style, I mean, is that, a, is that such a problem that you can't worship? No. Don't make it about you. Make it about him. Right? And I'm, I'm reminded here as I think about this uh, that there are ways in which we can miss the mark when it comes to worship. I'm reminded in particular of a warning that the prophet Isaiah spoke to the people of his day. And Jesus then later quoted that in his interaction with the religious Pharisees. I mean, these guys were supposed to be the religious leaders, right? Respected elders among the Jewish people. And Jesus confronted them with the words of Isaiah. And Isaiah confronted the people of his day with these words, Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. That's a warning that we have to take seriously. Right? Is your worship from the heart or just from the lips? Are you going through the religious motions or are you pouring out your genuine affection for the living God? This is why religion, as Paul puts it, can mask a love for self instead of a love for God. He warned Timothy, those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God will have a form of godliness but deny its power. Right? They'll act religious, but they'll actually fail to access the power of God's Spirit at work in their lives because they're just acting religious. So our expression of worship has to be active and it has to come from the heart. Whatever expression you choose to use, whether it's singing or whether it's shouting or whether it's praying or kneeling or raising your hands or whether it's walking in obedience to the Lord or whether it's giving of your tithe. I mean, there's scads of different things that could express worship. It's really rather broad. Sometimes we simplify it too much and we make it just about the music. Music is an important expression of worship, but it's not the only one. I mean, in a sense, worship encompasses everything we do as followers of Jesus. It can include how you do your job whatever that job is. You can do it as under the Lord, or you can do it for your boss, your other boss. Right? But the point here in all of this is that whatever expression you choose, it has to come from the heart, and it has to express the worth of God in your life. And I think, having said that, that music is uniquely powerful in that regard because it's a language of the heart. Right? We sing often uh, when we're in love with something. And it's an expression of the heart, the language of the heart. And so that's why David 
uh, sang and wrote all the psalms, which are you know, like the largest book of the Bible right in the middle. And we can see in the example of his life how music captured his heart and connected him to the Lord as an expression of worship. So let me give you just a couple quick examples. Psalm 30, 11 and 12. He says, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. That's the heart of David, a genuine worshiper. Psalm 57, 7 and 8. My, Lord, my heart, O oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. That was David's attitude at the beginning of every day. I'm going to awaken the dawn with worship because my heart is steadfast before the Lord. I'm going to sing and make music because it's an outpouring of my love for God. So you see what both David and the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well learned, each in their own way, is about the priority of practicing worship if you want to live well in right relationship with God. And that brings me to what I want to close with just briefly here. Our time is about up. Last point, worship is the first priority and practice of any person and church that intends to live well, to truly live well. It's got to be our first priority and practice above all else. Again, notice Jesus' words in John 4.23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. You see how that statement begins? We kind of started at the end and worked our way back to the beginning with this verse. A time is coming, Jesus says, and has now come. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm about to raise up a new breed of worshiper. And that breed of worshiper is going to be focused on worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Because that's the kind of worshiper that the Father is seeking. A time is coming and has now come. The time has come. Right? That's the message here. The time has come to become the kind of worshiper that God is looking for. What are you waiting for? The time has come to reassert this as our highest priority in the life of the church, both personally and corporately. The time has come to dedicate ourselves to becoming the kind of genuine worshipers that the Father is seeking. And this doesn't just bless God, it blesses us, right? When we put ourselves in the posture of genuine worshipers before the throne of God, we put ourselves in position to receive everything that he has to offer us because it's a position of humility. It's a position of recognizing his capabilities and our incapabilities. Now, as I've said, there are multiple practices that Scripture teaches us that will take us deeper in our relationship with the Lord. And we'll talk about those over the next couple of months, actually. The first four that are all upward-directed practices in our life together as a church. Worship, discipleship, stewardship, and prayer. 
We're going to spend the first four months of the year on those four practices that deepen our relationship with the Lord. But the crown jewel is worship. That's the beginning point. Because everything else flows from a heart of worship. If you want to focus more on the truth of knowing God's word and living it out, how it shapes your life as a disciple of Christ, that's great. But that practice flows from a heart of love for the Lord, a heart of worship. If you want to focus on the importance of stewarding all that God has given you and giving some of it back to him, that's great. That's a, that's a beautiful thing to do, an important thing to do, a biblical thing to do. But that practice flows from a heart of devoted worship for the Lord. If you want to focus on learning and practicing the priority of prayer, communicating with God by both speaking and listening, that's great. Go for it. I'm doing that right now, trying to press in more than I ever have before. But that practice begins with a heart of worship. How much time and energy you devote to your prayer life is a reflection of how much worth you give to God. Jesus prayed routinely because he was in love with the Father. And he valued their connectedness more than anything else in life. And so my friends, part of what this story challenges us with is a a fundamental re-examination of our priorities. Is, is it your priority to become a genuine and passionate worshiper of Jesus Christ? Where does that rank on the list for you? Is it an undisputed number one, or is it somewhere down the way? Is becoming a genuine worshiper after God's own heart of first priority, or if you're honest, has it really not been as important as it should be? You see, this story speaks to us not just personally, but it also speaks to us as a church, right? What kind of church do we want to be? Are we committed to becoming genuine worshipers together? Worship isn't just an individual practice. It's a corporate practice. It's the first priority of the gathered church. When we come together, we come into God's presence. And the way to come into God's presence, as the Bible describes it, is in worship so that we can posture ourselves to receive everything he has for us. Worship is an approach to the presence of God that's filled with honor, filled with recognition of how great God is. Psalm 22 tells us that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. That's a powerful concept to think about, meditate on, because I mean, in reality, God is enthroned in heaven, right? He sits on a throne over heaven and earth, a real throne. But this psalm tells us that he's enthroned, actually enthroned on the praises of his people. What does that mean for us? I think it means that somehow when we come together in praise and worship, it's as if God is enthroned among us in our midst, right? and in each one of our hearts. And it's as if we are somehow then mysteriously transported through worship right into the most holy place before the eternal throne of God. In short, worship is how we enter 
and experience the presence of God. It's the most important thing that you could ever give your time to. And so if our mission and vision is to help people live well in right relationship with God, then we have to learn how to worship together. And we have to continue to prioritize that practice so that together we can become the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Let's